0: Thank you. And welcome back to A View from Earth, the official podcast of Fisk Planetarium. As always, my name is Tara. I'm a planetary scientist and a CU alum. I used to be a presenter at the Fisk Planetarium as well as the outreach coordinator. Uh, I no longer get to do that, and it is very sad, but I still get to come on and host this podcast with my co-host, Colin. Hi, Colin.
1: Hello. Um Funny thing that just happened, my internet did just die fully, and both of you froze, and I heard none of that. Um, right as that happened, uh, which is funny. And so, um, fine. you
0: know who I am.
1: I do know who you are. I know a lot about you, I think, unless you live like this secret double life that, you know, yeah, it's, it's, I wouldn't be surprised to find out if Tara Tomlinson was actually like a spy. I mean, you speak Russian, so like there is that, you know. Sorry, 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 I'm going to blow your cover. Uh, anywho, hello, yes. Hi, I'm Colin. Uh, I also, uh, we're, I don't know what you said, but I'm going to go ahead and think that you said the following, which is that I also work at Fisk um, currently as a presenter. I'm a student here at CU. I study astrophysics and computer science. Um, and I uh, will hopefully graduate in the spring um, if all goes to plan. Um, but uh, that's kind of what I do and who I am. and I also have internet issues, apparently. So that's me. Thank you for coming.
2: John. Hello, hi, I'm back Yay. Yeah. i was I was away for season four, but I'm back now. Um, and yeah. Uh, In case uh, anybody has not known me, I graduated from CU back in 2019, um, and now I work in their production studio uh, doing a lot of the, well, productions, uh, building full dome shows and other kinds of content that we put up on YouTube and this podcast as well um so yeah that's who i am and because
0: you just heard john talk so much that must mean that this is another of you from earth holiday special yes it is. it is not a typical two-person or one-person interview show like we normally do this is our our world famous holiday specials that everyone knows and loves.
1: World famous. Uh, <laughs> wow.
0: Yes, totally. Um and unfortunately this is the last holiday special that we will be doing. Um a view from earth has sort of run its course and uh we are all moving on to bigger and better things and we'll talk about that a little bit later. What exactly is going to happen in the future? But to start off we thought we would take a look back at some of the things that we've done and the places we've been and the people we've talked to so uh colin went and pulled some clips from each of the highest viewed shows from each of our four seasons four and so we're going to take a look at some of those and some of the uh cool people that we've talked to so we're going to go all the way back to season one episode one our very first one um where we talked to okay okay so we had an episode zero (laughs) where we talked to john keller and that was great too but season one episode one uh here's a clip where we talked to jimmy negus about uh active galactic nuclei and black holes at the center of galaxies Just to clarify, so do most scientists now think that every galaxy has a black hole at the center?
3: Every massive galaxy. So the exception, of course, you have dwarf galaxies or irregular galaxies. Uh, So you can think of objects like the small Magellanic clouds, the large Magellanic clouds. For objects like those, it has not been confirmed that at the center of all of those entities, uh, there exists a black hole. But what has shown in the literature with very, very strong consistency and evidence is that supermassive black holes do occupy these inner regions. And, you know, of course it's astronomy, so we can only provide um, the strongest consensus. Um, it's, it's always, it's a scientific process. So it's, it's always under constant review and evaluation. And so that's why we, you know, nothing is 100% definitive, but we strongly believe that this is the case um, for our, our massive galaxies in our universe. So that was uh, Jimmy Negus telling yeah. us
1: about the fact that uh, all large galaxies, as far as we can tell, have active galactic nuclei, AKA black hole at the center.
0: And so I think a it was, black hole. yes. I think he made another really good point there, though, that science is not 100%, especially astronomy it's like we never know something for sure without a doubt um there's always we're doing the best we can with what we have uh and i think that people need to remember that (laughs) we're doing the best we can yeah
1: she says as she starts crying (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's i think you know having been a student of natural sciences in college, which is, you know, something that I was interested in, but not like enveloped in, in uh, high school and before, I think that there's a lot of missing, at least for me, there seems to have been a lot of missing information about what science as an institution is, right? I was kind of under the impression that like, Contrary to what Jimmy told us and what you just emphasized, Tara, that like science was the in the business of finding things that are absolutely true. Um, and I think that you'll meet very few scientists, if any, that will claim that uh, rather than what Jimmy said, which is that we're you know trying to get as close as we can to the truth in understanding the way that things work. But like all we can do is is our best. Um, and the other point that I think is often missed is how much science and perhaps this has shown up on our show before. Uh, how much incentive there is to prove things wrong. Um, And that's really important because it often gets skipped. That's important because what it means is that the things that survive are the things that cannot or have not yet been proven wrong uh, by fellow scientists. And there's a huge incentive to do that. You gain a lot of credibility and brownie points in the scientific community if you can show that someone's paper has a flaw. Um, and that's why you can trust what we have so far is because, you you know, it's very difficult or impossible with, we you know, the, the data that exists to like show that certain things aren't what we think they are.
2: Yeah. And I think going back to your first uh, point and Tara's as well, I think the idea that science always has an answer um, is sort of uh, comes from the way, at least in the American education system, how science is taught in elementary school, high school, and even the first couple of years of college is that there is always a right answer. You get, you have a test and you find the answer and then you're done um, because you're looking over uh, discoveries that have already been made. They've already been, uh, they have not yet been disproven, as you said, um, because for the most part, we have found that they are Correct. Um, but then you get into the last three or four years of uh, bachelor education and you get that uh, realization hit very hard that there's a lot we still don't know.
0: I know I struggled with that when I first started doing research. Yeah. It was very much like I I felt terrible because I didn't know the answer. I could not figure mm-hmm. this stuff out. For I spent three years on this project and have like not really a conclusion (laughs)
2: yeah
0: but it's it's definitely a it's a disservice to people to 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 bring them up that way but it's it's something that we learn yeah you roll with it
1: absolutely i think having that understanding of what science is to also helps to uh kind of i don't know what the right word is here but like it makes it okay when we find out something new and what we think is true changes for example For hundreds of years, it could even, I think it's probably hundreds, it could have been thousands. People thought that planets were on these little like mini orbits on orbits called epicycles and that the Earth was the center of the universe, right? Um, And this was, I think, that Ptolemy, a Greek uh, astronomer, more or less, was uh, perhaps the most like well-known characterizer of this. Um, And, you know, it took a long time for us to realize, wait, there's a much simpler explanation that makes so much more sense. And that's that the sun is at the center of our solar system and things orbit the sun. And that's the, you know, generally referred to as the Copernican view, right? Um, Who in, you know, Copernicus was the astronomer that kind of coined this idea. And it was the fact that, you know, like people really thought that epicycles were a thing. Like that was yeah. how it was thought to be. Um, and people had to be receptive and at first they won't, you know, they weren't, it was a, it was a kind of a pushback to say, no, like we're not the center of the universe. Um, but over time, you know, scientists and, and kind of the literature and the idea of what was adapted to the better explanation. And so it's important, I think that we also don't resist new information that can, you know, change the way that we see things.
0: I will take this moment to plug this amazing book called the structure of scientific revolutions by Thomas Kuhn oh. that goes into all of that from all the way from like way back in the Greeks up to Einstein and modern quantum stuff. And it's really fascinating. It's written sort of from like, he was a physicist, but also a psychologist kind of, or maybe like a philosopher perhaps, but it's really, really good. And I highly recommend that if you're interested in the thought process behind science
1: Really good. That's stuff. sick. Thanks for that, Tara. I might have to go check out myself a copy of that because really that's super cool.
2: All right.
0: Well, shall we move on to season two? Yeah, let's I move on. Can. Okay. Well, for season two, our most watch episode was with Andrew Novick where we talked about the atomic clock. What makes the atomic clock tick? Can you give us kind of a brief overview of what an atomic clock is and kind of how it works?
4: Yeah, sure. Uh, <clears throat> so atomic clocks uh, work with a natural resonance frequency of atoms and uh, the, the huge benefit of atomic clocks is um, because before whether we used pendulum clocks or quartz crystal clocks um, or even the stars and the, um, the planetary motion for figuring out time and time synchronization. Um, all of those factors have kind of a human aspect to them. Uh, so like if you made a quartz crystal clock, the frequency of that clock depends on how you cut the quartz and the temperature and things like that, or the pendulum, the frequency of the pendulum depends on, um, the length of the arm. And so <clears throat> if you were to make a clock, a pendulum clock, and I were to make a pendulum clock, there's nothing that would say that those would be the same and so um, using a natural resonance frequency of atoms we have a huge benefit that anywhere around the world the resonance frequency of a particular state change of a cesium atom is the same frequency and so uh, the way that we get that like get that frequency out of an atom um, is not that the atom is emitting a frequency um, in this case it's that uh, a very particular resonance frequency will make an atom change atomic states. So if we want to change between the F3 to the F4 state of an atom, if you remember your orbital chemistry, <laughs> um, there's a very particular frequency so that if you interrogate the atom with that frequency, you it will change states. And so uh, what we do is generate a, a frequency at At or around the frequency that we believe will make an atom change state and we do it to a lot of atoms So in the case of like a cesium beam tube clock, there's um, You know billions of atoms streaming by and We they go through a region where they get interrogated with a frequency And then we look on the other end to see did they change state or how many change states? and then we use a feedback electronics to change the frequency to where we get the peak of atoms changing state. And so that frequency is kind of locked to the um, that resonance frequency of atoms. And so, and usually that frequency comes from, even though like the, the resonance frequency for cesium that we use is on the order of nine gigahertz, nine billion hertz, uh, but that's multiplied up from like a five or 10 megahertz signal. And so what we end up having is a really, really stable five megahertz that comes out of an atomic clock uh, because it's locked to that frequency, that resonance frequency. Um, So you might wonder if that's really, it's not really an atomic clock if it doesn't tell what time it is. It's really an atomic oscillator. the, The output of an atomic clock is not time, it's actually frequency. It's a very, very, very stable frequency.
1: And that is our interview
4: with Andrew
1: Novik, or part of it.
0: That was a lot of big words and concepts.
1: Yes, it was. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I wonder if we hmm, now we're at this crossroads. Do we try and dissect some of this right here, right now, or do we encourage any listeners that are curious about what all of this was? to go listen to because i think we do break apart a lot of what we just what andrew just said you know following that question
5: yeah Um, i think so
1: perhaps you can go check out season two episode 13 of a view from earth for the full walkthrough of what's happening there
0: he will explain it much better than i ever could
1: yes yeah yeah i mean that's his job so you know (laughs)
2: literally I mean, I think the basic point is that when you have an atomic clock, just like you have an oscillating clock, um, it's that back and forth motion, um, even that doesn't measure time. That just gives you the interval of a second. And so when you have that five megahertz signal, every 5,000 cycles of that, you know, you've passed one second. Right. And so that that's how you keep track of that kind of time. Right.
1: That was an excellent, succinct description. Thank you, John. (laughs) John Schiller, everyone, atomic clock (laughs) specialist.
2: Uh, Please don't say that. I still (laughs) don't really understand most of it. That's what I gleaned from that portion. (laughs) Well, I think
1: you've done a great job at it. Thank you. Uh, I think also something, and perhaps we talk about this in the episode, but I'm not certain, is how you go from having that really you know, stable cadence. Now we really understand, like, here's a second, right? And we kind of yeah. defined, like, we chose cesium, and we talked about why we chose cesium um, as the atom that kind of helps us define the second, um, and how you kind of take that and, like, turn it into, here's the time that the world uses, you know, uh, which is, you know, despite his example of using the stars as kind of like a a human interpretation of what's happening, um, I think that we actually do do a lot of uh, reference to astronomical, uh, you know, mechanics um, in saying, you know, hey, you know, midnight or, or noon is defined by the average position where the sun is highest in the sky over this region, and that's noon, and then, we, you know, midnight's the opposite, et cetera, um, things like this, so.
2: Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, that makes sense, because, like, our definition of certain amounts of time comes from astronomical events our definition of a year is the amount of time it takes for the earth to orbit the sun um and so logically you follow that progression down step by step till you get to more uh instantaneous measures of time maybe not instantaneous but like you break it down further and further and Exactly, until you get to the atomic measurements.
1: Yeah. Right, right. Which I which I mean by cannot be broken down further. I,
2: yes. <laughs> I realize
1: that can be confusing because we're referring to an atom and the, I and the, it means the same wow, look at that. All of these things mean the same thing. Anyway. Yep. <laughs> I wonder if that means something interesting too. Like if we have found, hey, if we can use this cesium atom to define a second, which is a unit of time that's existed long before we could measure the oscillations of a cesium atom. You know, like is—is is there something int- you know connected between a cesium atom and its oscillation to a a uh, base sixty framework of time that we use to break our days, which are astronomically defined? Um, I don't know. Kind
2: of crazy. Yeah. All I connected, think- man. It's all connected. <laughs> I, th- I think they chose cesium because that's uh one that broke down easily into that base 60 if there was another civilization that used a base like 35 uh time scale then they would choose another atom that fit into that uh period do you remember when i want to say it was like some
1: some french institution wanted to change our time scales to base 10 so there would be like 10 what was it it was like 100 minutes in an hour and 100 seconds in a minute and then like 10 hours in a day or something like that. And there was like the math to support it, but the rest of the world was not using that system. So yeah. That, that would have been yeah. really nice. I wouldn't have to write a program to like do time conversion <laughs> to like yeah. Stack durations. Yeah.
2: Crazy. Yeah. That that I mean that's always the hurdle when you want to switch units on a national or global scale is just getting everybody on board and doing it. Um your, the system you come up with may be better but there's so much process involved in switching over that it becomes easier to use the old system
1: there is now you know it used to be we could just go in somewhere and say this is what we're using now use it or die. <laughs> and now you know yeah. it's a little more diplomatic which oh, is yeah. a good thing that's a good thing I would say yeah <laughs> Speaking
0: of diplomats, this is a perfect segue into our next clip from season three. Our most watched episode was uh, Washington at Astro, where we talked about space policy with Dr. Jack Burns. I loved this episode. I loved this conversation. I thought it was really cool and we could have talked to him for like days. But here's just a short little intro to that. So, one of the first things we wanted to ask you is this this idea of space policy. Has this always something been something that interests you, or is this something that came with your experience of doing science?
6: Yeah, it really came with um, doing science over over the years. Um, you know spending a lot of time um, in Washington uh, advocating for missions, uh, advocating as part of the American Astronomical Society for funding uh, for astronomy and astrophysics, uh, getting to know the movers and shakers on Capitol Hill, um, a number of administrators of NASA over the years. So you sort of build up a little bit of, um, of that expertise, um, actually a lot of that expertise uh, over a period of decades, uh, seeing how Washington works, seeing how to get things done. And then um, when I, uh, I joined the faculty, rejoined the faculty at CU after serving as a uh, vice president for academic affairs and research, um, I started teaching um, a class on uh, space policy um, almost 15 years ago now. So, and do that pretty regularly. So that too, you know, teaching always uh, 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 further develops some expertise.
1: And there you have it.
0: I will agree with that point wholeheartedly. Teaching always helps develop some expertise.
1: Absolutely.
0: I used to make that joke with my friend who's a math professor. And she would she would be really worried about scheduling her entire like her entire semester at the beginning. And I was like, no, you just need to be like two lessons ahead of the students, and then you're good. <laughs>
1: I did work with a, a professor here at CU for a summer and like a semester who also felt the the fears of like knowing what am I going to teach? And it, the thing is, is that it's apparently every so often as a college professor, you are asked to teach a subject that you don't specialize in, that you don't have experience in. And so he was teaching himself the material, you know, moments before he had to teach it to a class. Um, but it's kind of cool because, you know, something that I've heard a lot Uh, over, you know, the kind of academic life cycle is that getting your degrees is, you know, a way of specializing in what you do. But even more so, it's learning how to learn and becoming really good at learning. So these, uh, you know, professors, of course, are uh, well equipped to learn something quickly, and then, you know, redistribute that information, understandably, but teaching adds a lot of perspective, for sure.
0: Sure. And I even did that with some presentations when I started doing the uh, like the seasonal specials with the solstices and the uh, equinoxes and things Mm. like before each one of those, I did so much research and learned so much cool stuff about solstices and equinoxes that I had no idea. Like I a lot of like weird cultural things and, you know, just trying to learn how to explain things better. You got to do a really deep dive sometimes. Uh, So just like, yeah, preparing for shows that I would do, I would learn a ton.
1: You also kind of learn a lot about what you don't know. You know, I, uh, for several semesters here at CU, have been a learning assistant, which is like for anyone who doesn't know, an undergraduate PA more or less. Um, And there's a lot of times where like, you know, leading recitations and things, a student would ask, you know, why is this the case? And like, if that question hadn't been asked, it wouldn't have bothered me, you know, like I'm okay with... whatever gap there was but as soon as the student asks the question you kind of have to be like wait why is it that way and you kind of have to work through it with the student and figure it out and there were a couple of days when we had to leave and say let me go look this look into this because i can't answer that right now um and you end up learning something really cool
2: yeah and that happens often at the planetarium as well you'll be uh, giving a show and you'll get an audience question about why does this happen what does what does this or what is this thing that we're looking at and um you're standing there and you don't know and so uh i had presenters often say you know i don't know the answer to that uh come to the end come talk to me at the end of the show and we'll we'll figure it out and then as a navigator i'm sitting back there i ended up just i ended up just googling it um and looking through all the information and then you know we bring that to the audience member or sometimes even we can't find the answer and we give our give them an we'll uh, take their email and say we'll do some more research and we'll send you the answer that,
5: that was always want-
0: my go-to when i didn't know i would turn around and say john do you have any idea Synchrotron <laughs> <laughs> radiation oh okay yeah <laughs> obviously uh, <yes.
5: laughs>
1: And that's kind of a cool thing about coming to a live planetarium right where you have these people even if the presenter in the room and you know our presenters generally are you, you, they're they have the job because they're passionate about you know space and space facts and you know explanation and things like this but We also have connections as a planetarium to the entire astrophysical and planetary sciences faculty at CU. I have uh, phoned in Dave Brain several times to answer questions about uh, Mars, for example, that I couldn't find the answer to myself, Um, and that's kind of a cool resource because you know you can't generally like on YouTube if you're watching something say, hey, can I like get in touch with like an actual expert who has a PhD in this field? Um, But at Fisk, that is true, and so uh, it's kind of a cool a cool like. They're just a phone call away.
6: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Or a Slack message.
2: <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're contactable. <laughs> um,
1: and also on the subject of space policy, which really is what that episode is about. Um, and, you know, it's a newer field that, you know, we've kind of had this habit of like telling people how and what is okay in society and how to do things. Um, and I think only recently, which is something that we touch on on the episode has there become the advent of space travel and saying, well, how, you know, can you, when you're done with your spacecraft, can you just leave it up there? Or like, do you have to control where it comes down? Or like, can you just forget about it? How does this all work? Um, and that's something that uh, a former roommate of mine is super interested in, you know, going into as well. So if you're interested in policy, but you know, not loving doing quantum mechanics, then perhaps that's an avenue for you. (laughs)
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, we've got one more season and one more episode here. Our season four most watched episode was one of the first ones. It was doing the wave where we did a double interview with Lynn Harvey and Cora Randall. That was a nice wave call and I like it. (laughs) Thank you. That was really fun to talk to both of them. Let's see what they had to say. is is investigating gravity waves which are different from gravitational waves which we normally think of with things like you know black holes and big astrophysical objects so what exactly are gravity waves and how do they differ from these gravitational waves or how do these gravity waves work
5: so so gravity waves as we are investigating them they are um, formed in the earth's atmosphere So whereas the gravitational waves you're talking about are um, extraterrestrial, um, the the gravity waves that we're talking about are actually generated in the Earth's atmosphere. A lot of them are generated um, near the surface um, by weather phenomena. For instance, a thunderstorm might generate uh, gravity waves, or a hurricane might generate gravity waves, or just very fast winds that come over the mountains might uh, generate gravity waves and then the, they're called gravity waves because the air maybe is you know, uplifted and then pulled back down by gravity, but it's pulled a little too far, so then it goes back up again to compensate, and then it goes back down again because of gravity, and so it forms this wave-like structure in the atmosphere. Um, those waves, um, even if they're generated way down low near the surface, they can actually then travel up through the atmosphere, and because it's a wave, it will cause variations in the atmosphere itself. It'll say the density of the atmosphere will then take on this wave-like characteristic, or anything in the atmosphere, the temperature will take on a wave-like characteristic, or say ozone in the stratosphere will take on a wave-like characteristic. And these can propagate all the way up through the upper atmosphere into the ionosphere, Um, and because they cause variations, and we need the ionosphere to help with communications, say, with satellites, GPS communication. They can actually then affect those communications. So that's kind of it in a nutshell, I would say.
1: Um, I, we didn't quite get there in that clip, but something that I notice all the time now are clouds, which are caused by gravity waves. And you see like those, those clouds that there's like a line of cloud and then nothing, then a line of cloud and then nothing, and a line of cloud And you just see these like lines, those are gravity waves you're seeing that happen in action, uh, forming cloud structures, which is something that I uh, never realized that that was like a thing that happened. And now every time I'm outside and I see one of those clouds, which they're pretty common, especially over the mountains here in Colorado, uh, you can see them. It's kind of crazy.
0: We do not get them over the mountains in Vermont, it's a whole different system. Like clouds, the sky and the clouds here are completely different than they were in Colorado even though it's still sort of mountain, maybe because I'm like in the middle of the mountains sure. instead of on the foothills and right on the edge,
1: but still, still it's weird. Qualitatively like describe like in what ways are they different? What do you see that over there in Vermont?
0: A, they are fast. Like we don't have nice, just like, you know how sometimes in Colorado you get those like big, like the big super fluffy clouds or lenticular clouds. It just sort of like hover and they're just there. Clouds here race, man. They are quick. I don't know if it's because we're so close to the ocean, if that has something to do with it. I'm not an atmospheric scientist. I don't know. Let's call Dave Brain. Um, it's, but it's very strange. We get, we don't get a lot of like big thunder, like thunderhead kind of clouds. We don't get lenticular clouds, which I'm pretty upset about. Uh, those are my favorite. But yeah, it's just like it's, it's just very different. It's strange. Huh
1: crazy yeah totally
0: it's like a whole other place
1: it is it's like
2: you're not even in colorado anymore i know bizarre Yeah, but I mean, I grew up in the mountains of Colorado, and I can confirm that we really got gravity wave clouds um, because the air was just so broken up by everything on the ground. Um, then, when I moved out to Boulder, I see them all the time out here, um, and so I, so I think it's that really like sharp edge to the mountains that we have that creates that uh, ripple.
1: If you've never had the opportunity to look at a topographic map of Boulder, um, listeners, it is a, it's a crazy, like it's flat, 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 boom, mountains. It's not progressive at all. Like it's, there's like a line that you can draw and you're like, that's where the plate came up. That's right there. And that's that, um,
2: which is kind of bizarre. Yeah. It's a unique place. Mm -hmm. It really is. And we also get some of the highest winds in the continental United States here.
1: Yeah. 73 miles an hour two days ago. Yep. Yeah, it was crazy. old grown pine trees out of the ground. Yep.
0: We had a windstorm here and we had gusts of like 50. Oh, wow. It was crazy. I know. <laughs> that's, that's a normal day in Boulder, but it blew over <laughs> our wood pile. <laughs>
1: John's, oh, wow, completely sarcastic. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. That's I know.
0: Jaded <laughs> me over here, which is
1: like, this ain't windy. Which is interesting because the clouds are fast where you are, but, you know, the wind is generally less, it seems, uh, in magnitude less crazy. And here in Boulder, there's lots of wind all the time. That's pretty serious. But the clouds are like, nah, bro, I'll just hang out here. It's fine.
0: I wonder if the wind is coming like over the top of the mountains and just going high and pushing the clouds with it.
1: Ooh, Yeah. I could see like if you have a range of mountains and you have a weather system moving, right? The, you know, the the air would kind of go up like a ramp off the mountains into the clouds, do some stuff. And so if you're in the mountains and, you know, the wind's coming up the mountain on one end, then that would make sense. Whereas in Boulder... It's the, all of that air coming back down the mountains, kind of pointing it straight at the ground where everyone mm-hmm. is. Yeah. So, um, non-atmospheric science, me, you know, that your, your idea there makes sense with the very zero <laughs> atmospheric authority that
2: I have.
0: <laughs> that any of us have.
2: Yeah. Hey, I took a yeah. class in atmospheric
1: science.
0: <laughs> I did too, but it was from but it was from a non-atmospheric scientist. No,
1: I didn't not so I should yeah. shut my mouth.
2: Uh, I did one ATOC class.
0: I just took the one we do in APS, but it was great. It was awesome. I oh planets in their atmospheres. Planets yep. in their atmospheres.
1: I almost took class. that course for the spring, but it's opted for spectroscopy instead. Yeah let's look at some spectra wow wow those were our our top viewed episodes from each season and actually as it happens that first one with jimmy um and also we speak to andrew hamilton after we speak to jimmy in that episode is our number one viewed episode of all time so um kind of a you know a fun start to the uh, podcast and then we slowly tapered out and uh (laughs) the show became one of the uh, that for those who are always around listening. So thank you for those listeners that are still checking us out.
0: Okay, so we've looked back at some of the things that we've done on A View from Earth. And in our holiday special tradition, we are going to now look forward. Um, and, you know, we thought we'd start by looking at the future of the three of us and where we're, what we're doing now as opposed to last year and where we think we're going to go in the future.
1: I love that one episode constitutes a tradition in our tradition, which we've done once. And that's beautiful.
3: I think it's a great tradition.
1: Oh, Okay, great. Um, Cool. Yes, John, I agree. It is a great tradition. And here I will uphold it right now. And here we go. Uh, I'm so sorry. Uh, In the future, I plan to be no more smooth than I am right now, which is not very much.
0: Yeah, well um, on your
1: way. They, wow. Hey. <laughs> Listen here, Tara. Uh, let's think. So I plan, as I mentioned earlier, I plan to graduate in May, uh, barring any complications uh, that would make that not the case, such as failing classes, which I don't plan on doing. Um, and so if I graduate, uh, when I graduate in the summer, I will do the normal things which that I do, which is uh, musicals. I'm a music director for a couple of local educational youth theater companies. We do like summer camp shows. So that'll be the first part of my summer, regardless of what happens. Um and I actually recently applied for a position at NCAR to work on some uh, some data visualization design. So like you know uh, a, a team or a scientist comes and says, "I have this this data set. how make it look like something." And then we do. Um, and so hopefully if that happens, you know that could potentially turn into a job. Uh, full-time after I graduate, which would be sick because, you know, staying in science and getting to just do like make cool plots and visualizations sounds sick to me. Um, If that's not the case, you know, I really am interested in computer science and data analysis, um, which kind of go hand in hand, but I'll search for something there. And then perhaps one day I'll go back and hopefully maybe find a company that will sponsor like a master's degree or something. And uh, you know, Go back to school because school is all i have known for the past uh, 21 years and i'm it's a lot of fun so there's me my what i see as my future in a nutshell popcorn john
2: yeah so um i'm still a fisk i plan to be for at least the next uh, little while um I've been loving doing the production and exploring uh my creativity. That's not something I've ever really had a hand in. I've always been very in in very technical fields uh business operations into hard science. Um, so I've been really enjoying exploring my creativity and being able to do that. Um, Long term, I think I might go back to school. Um, I've been looking at a couple engineering master's programs, either mechanical or aerospace. Um, so yeah, kind of kind of just going with the flow right now and seeing, seeing what the future holds for me. Parkour
0: Hey, Um, so I guess since last year, my big thing was I have started grad school now. Um, I am in an engineering program at Dartmouth, Uh, so I am no longer in Colorado. I am up in beautiful Post Mills, Vermont population 213, Um, (laughs) but I am going to school at Dartmouth. I am in their engineering school, which is a huge change for me. I come from totally astronomy, planetary science background, so being an engineer now is a whole other world. It's it's very, very different, but I'm still doing planetary science. I'm just doing it sort of on a different scale and from a different point of view, but I get to do really cool things like look at glaciers on Pluto is one of my projects that I'm working on. I'm also doing some stuff with like how salt and water and ice interact in the shell of Europa, testing different kinds of interactions that are happening and seeing, you know, where brine channels form and go and there's thermal stuff it's making plots it's awesome um so that's some some really fun stuff that I've started working on I've still got some classes that I have to take and things like that so that's I mean that's basically the next six years of my life is just doing this uh this grad school thing and learning to be a professional scientist in a whole sort of other capacity I've been doing science for a living for a few years, but this is a whole other ballgame. So um, I've also just started working as a, uh, a advocate for the International Dark Sky Association, uh, which is really, really fun. Um, we have great meetings, and I got to see a really cool presentation about the horrors of uh, satellite constellations. Don't get me started. It's craziness. What's um,
1: satellite constellations, Tara? What's that? Tell us about satellite constellations.
0: So like satellite constellations, people, if if you're not familiar, this is the things that like uh, Elon Musk wants to send up into space to give everybody free internet. That's a great idea, but they're launching 65,000 satellites in the next like year. So, and they're all going into low earth, low earth orbit, like right where, The ISS is right where all of our earth observing satellites are Um, so and it's just filling up the sky with space junk it's causing light pollution it's endangering our astronauts it actually causes um air pollution too because when these things get to the end of their life they fall back into the atmosphere they burn up they release a ton of aluminum into our atmosphere so there's there's that um, it's pretty frightening. Anyway, <laughs> that's a thing I'm doing too, is being a dark sky advocate um, to bring about awareness to light pollution issues, both on the Elon Musk level and on your neighborhood level. Fix your lights, turn your lights off, that kind of thing.
1: People, I think, don't realize how much more night sky there is if, we, if you grow up in a densely populated or even like a, a mid tier populated area. Uh, one of my favorite things to do in star talks at Fisk is to, you know, we we like make it nighttime if it's not already nighttime, keeping light pollution on, and you can see like you know the thousand brightest stars or whatever. It's pretty similar to what you would actually see outside. That's the point. And then we say, okay, you know, what if we took a drive up the canyon and went to like a place that's not heavily, you know, populated and there's not so much light, and the navigator like slowly, you know dials back the light pollution and like tens of thousands of stars pop into view and you're like oh my god i can see everything and it's people like every time there's an audible ooh or ah every time it's the absolute best it's the best and so if you haven't experienced that do somehow whether that means going to fisk and seeing one of these star talks uh, which accompany pretty much every show that has a live presentation Or if you want to just like go see a place with dark skies, you know, there's websites that will show you where Um, it's it's really something magnificent. So
0: that's one of the things that really got me to want to be an advocate is moving out here to the middle of nowhere, (laughs) way out in the country. um, And I can see the Milky Way from my porch. Like and my, my neighbors have lights on and I can still just look up and hey, there it is. It's craziness.
2: Like,
0: it should be like that everywhere. It everywhere should. should be that way.
1: I think it's easy to forget. You know, those astronomy plays such a huge role in what, like, in in human culture everywhere. Um, and I think that you know, sometimes it might. It's easy to understand why that is the case when you don't have light pollution. Every the night sky is so in your face. It's so beautiful and and striking. And then when you have light pollution, it kind of goes away and you, you know, like living and having always lived in a, at least somewhat populated area, you know, I'm so used to the night sky, mostly just being like this, like dark haze, you know, even in a clear night, there's just not much going on. Um, And so, well, thanks for being an advocate for dark skies, Tara, and helping us. And it
0: goes way beyond astronomy too. It's, it's a social justice issue um Ooh. there's a whole lot of really disturbing research that's going on there like it's animal rights like we're messing up bird migrations birds are dying by the thousands you know from all of this different stuff so it it encompasses a whole like it increases rates of cancer i just read a report that it uh is tied to worst cases of covid like things like that it's it's a whole encompassing thing it's not just an astronomer's problem it's not just we can't see stars it's way bigger than that
1: nice well is there a website that you can point listeners to that if you want to go find this out
0: yes uh i believe let me double check Darksky.org is the ida website and anybody can be a dark sky advocate you just got to fill out a thing and come to a one-hour training session and boom, you're an advocate. Most places have local chapters that do like meetings and things. Colorado has a really big one. Um, there's not one up here, so I might that might be in my future too, is starting an IDA chapter for uh, the Upper Valley. Nice. We'll see.
1: With all my Pretty free cool. time. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're not busy at all. It's fine. So cool. Well, I guess uh, moving moving ahead. Uh, so if you've been on the campus of CU taking an astronomy course here, or, you know, there's a handful of these elsewhere in the US and probably around the world, we have something called the Colorado Scaled Model Solar System, uh, the CSMSS, And it uh, is essentially, uh, we took this solar system, divided everything by 10 billion and put it on our campus. So there's a sun and then there's, you know, right now, actually, no, it's been updated. And we have a, a guest to tell you about that in just a moment, but it allows you to walk through the solar system and see the relative sizes and distances of everything. So there's plaques, right? There's one for the sun, and then Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, mm-hmm. and the asteroid belt. And then you skip through, and you get Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, still Pluto, um, and uh, you can kind of see uh, just how you know how these sizes relate, and how small, and how much, how little space the planets take up, you know, in in the grand scheme of things. Um, And how they compare to the size of the sun, for example, how much larger the sun is than the planets. It's very cool. Um, But actually, there was just a pretty serious update to that thing on our campus. And so for that, uh, we are going to talk to Jimmy Negus, who you actually heard just moments ago uh, from our first episode and that little recap. um, And I'll let him do some of this talking. All right. And now we are speaking with Jimmy Negus. Uh, Jimmy, thanks so much for being with us. Tell us about the... Uh Colorado scale model solar system on CU's campus and what role you're playing in uh, what's happening with it.
3: Oh, cool. So yeah, I'm Jimmy. I'm a fifth year grad student in the astronomy department and uh, yeah, the Colorado scale model solar system uh, has been a, uh, a passion of mine. Uh, I've been working on upgrading the existing model for about three years. Um, so my role was, uh, you know, I was a TA, um, in the astronomy department and, um, I saw the model needed some upgrades and I started a campaign to, uh, to upgrade the model entirely. Uh, and so, yeah, it's been a journey of, you know, funding and garnering interest and, uh, getting parties invested and, um, you know, really having this grand vision of, uh, of a new freshly minted model installed on um, the campus of the University of Colorado at Boulder. Uh, and part of those upgrades, um, you know, we, we're dealing with stanchions now which are upright, which are, um, you know, different than the traditional plaques of the original model. We have, you know, full color graphics. We have really quick before we like get into the details. What is the CSMSS? Just briefly for everyone that doesn't know what it is. Right. So let's let's take a few steps back. Uh, The original Colorado Scale Model Solar System uh, was first um, was first initiated in 1986 under Dr. Jeff Bennett, who was a grad student at CU at the time. Uh, And the original model was dedicated to the uh, Challenger um, space shuttle accident. And um, in particular, uh, one of the space shuttle disaster um, um, astronauts was an alumni of the university. Um, And so this original model was sort of devoted as a memorial to that astronaut as well as providing sort of an educational resource for the campus in terms of understanding cosmic distances uh in particular our solar system distances
1: cool sorry i just wanted to to get that in there really quick so that anyone listening could <laughs> say course. oh what's what is this thing and then uh so you've gone on this journey of funding you noticed it needed some upgrades uh from right. the 80s when it was installed it's now 2021 for anyone listening way in the future perhaps um or it for predates my birth yeah there you go mine too yeah
3: all of us right all of us
1: it predates all of us yeah so good so okay not so- all of us <laughs> sorry calling you out yeah
2: <laughs> it's
1: fine it's fine cool and so okay so now that we're caught up this is what this what the scale model solar system is uh and you've mentioned it needed some upgrades, you went on this journey of funding, um, and what did that look like? Uh, was it tricky? Did you have to fight hard? Or was, were people generally like, yeah, this could be upgraded, let's get a new one installed?
3: No, it's challenging. Anytime you're trying to pry money from any other entity, <laughs> it's a challenge. Uh, the fortune was on our side that this was pre-COVID, so before the, the real budget restrictions hit, uh, we had this campaign. Um, And it started with, you know, departments, you know, these are the most direct um, resources we have on campus uh, are the departments and they use the model in their curricula um, and their students engage most directly with the model. So we started with the astronomy department, which, you know, having some ties was the most natural course of action. And uh, you know, even that wasn't immediate. You know, there's some negotiation. You have to propose. You know, why do we really need to upgrade the entire model? Why couldn't we renovate the model? Are there cheaper options? Have you done your due diligence? What is sort of the return of our investment? And so these are all questions that had to be answered. And um, you know, fortunately, we we presented what I believe is a compelling case. Uh, And we were able to secure, you know, one of our first donations with the astronomy department. And then the next logical step was, well, you know, the aerospace department has links through the fallen astronauts who are alumna of the university who have ties to these departments. And so that was sort of our next, our next step was presenting a proposal to them um, you know, as well as other departments, but we, we realized steadily that, you know, five, six grand donations um, weren't going to really get us to that hundred and, you know, tw- 12 plus thousand uh, dollar goal. And so we had to sort of expand our fundraising campaign um, field of view. And that's where, you know, the office of the chancellor came into play. That's where the laboratory of atmospheric and space physics came to play. Uh, and these were sort of these, these bigger entities that had much larger funding sources and um, and really helped us achieve our goal. And uh, John Keller, actually, uh, our largest donor was is through the Grand Challenge, which is um, sort of a university entity that that helps um, with seed funding for, for big projects. And that really bridged the gap near the end with, with our largest donation. But it's certainly a snowball effect of... You know, first garnering the interest and then seeing what resources are most immediate and then expanding the vision. And once you have a few investors, this is no longer just a cool idea, but it's something that has real momentum, a real vision, and we can present, you know, a concrete path forward. Uh, And I also want to thank our public donors, even $100 donations through through a newspaper article. Like, we want to thank those individuals as well for contributing to to the project.
0: So what were some of the things specifically that needed updating on not just the look <laughs> of it but like I'm sure there were a lot of scientific things that needed to be updated as well
3: right, so the most obvious was Pluto uh, being a planet uh, which it's not it's a it's a <laughs> a dwarf body in the solar system um, but there were other sort of uh not even um information's on the plaques, but the literal distances of the plaques. So Mars, for example, uh, had to be relocated many times throughout its uh, existence. And in that process, you know, you're having construction crews that are, you know, where do we put this? You know, let's just, let's just get it on the grass and not understanding that this is a very sort of precise scientific exhibit. And so we wanted to remeasure you know, with a very low margin of uncertainty, the precise planetary distances in our scale model, so that when students do these labs, they can get direct correlation with the actual distances of the planets. Uh, and, and of course, you know, even the, the text was starting to fade. So even inferring what was accurate, <laughs> the, the challenge was actually deciphering text, uh, which we wanted to upgrade. And I
1: understand that along with, you know, a more modern visual presentation of all the information. Um, there's also a new way to experience the scale model solar system
3: beyond just looking at the stanchions. Can you tell us about that? That's right. And this was uh, sort of John uh, Keller, the director of Fisk, and Terry Rube um, from the College of uh, Media um, uh, and Communications. So they had this great idea to sonify the experience. And what I mean by that is is providing sort of an audio aid for members of the public and the student population that are walking the model. And so for us, we considered, you know, what if we have members who are, are visually impaired or um, you know, may not be able to, to make it to the stanchions to read the text, how can they still engage with this exhibit? And part of that is now the new Wanderers app, which is, um, it's available in the, in the Apple App Store. Um, and we're working on a uh, Android um, version as well. Um, but essentially your distance um, to each planetary body is encapsulated by an audio tone. And so, you know, this, this encapsulates the entire sort of orbital range of each planet. And what this does is this now opens up the model. So it's no longer a linear sort of experience, but wherever you are in relation to the model sun, and you know the closest planetary body, you can get an audio um, representation of that planet's orbital features and, and physical parameters. And so this we thought is really cool. Um, you know, it's best experienced with headphones, and uh, it's just an additional layer of uh, excitement for for those visiting the model. I hadn't realized that the planetarium dome was in the asteroid
1: belt from the sun. We were. <laughs> you know we were in the dome and doing the demo and they pulled it up on the screen and I was like huh I've never thought about where we are relative to the sun and the scale
3: so that was super cool right it's 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 fascinating and it's also a reminder you know when you see the model you know especially for the younger kids you know they may think that oh these planets are just always perfectly aligned and sweep out their orbit when in fact you know they almost never will you see a perfect alignment of all planetary bodies and this is sort of a reminder of the spatial sort of orbital context of these bodies. And then is there
1: one more addition to, so we, you know, you added Pluto right. or you 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 reclassified Pluto as a uh, dwarf <laughs> planet in this new system. Uh, right. There's the, the Regent underpass, which is a bridge on campus that used to not be there as the asteroid belt, right. and that has its own little stanchion now. And then was it there, was there also an addition now for the Voyager spacecraft over by uh, the Folsom field?
3: That is correct. So there are now sort of two entry slash outro stanchions that precede the model Sun and that are beyond the model Pluto. And these are sort of our <clears throat> our entry uh, boards for accessing the entire model. And one caveat is the entry board near Pluto is extremely special. This is the approximate distance that the Voyager space probe was when it took the pale blue dot photo. And so this is uh, the, the, the image of Earth uh, from beyond Pluto's orbit, showing that small little sliver of blue light that is our planet. And that um, is, was a profound moment in our, in our history. And so we wanted to encapsulate that with, with this entry stanchion. Very cool. What a neat idea for,
1: you know, <laughs> where do we place this and what does it mean? That's, that's very neat. Right. Awesome. <laughs>
3: uh, is there anything and I will else? say just what. I, yeah, I just wanted to add one thing. You know, a part of this process is, you know, the logistics and where are we going to put everything and should we change the existing model? And so one idea we were floating with was having, you um, you know, so, so Pluto's orbital range is very high, uh, you know, its eccentricity is great. And so we were debating having Pluto actually be closer to the, um, the Folsom Field football stadium uh, and being sort of a, a, a pillar there and, and having traffic come to the model. Um, but after much deliberation, you know, we considered sort of the ease of access, um, particularly for students in labs and you know we decided to keep it in line with the original model but this is sort of an example of um you know when you're building something new you know these possibilities are all considered and that all goes into the process of of um you know creating creating a new new exhibit absolutely i imagine it could probably
1: almost be overwhelming the amount of creative ideas that you could <laughs> do with this and you have to kind of shave off everything that isn't you know logical or or really um doable right. cool well is there anything else uh, about the, the renovation or the model solar
3: system itself that you'd like to uh, quickly get in before we move on, or is that the bulk? Of- I, I would just like to encourage everyone to uh, come out and visit the model. Uh, we're, we're still finalizing sort of the, um, the concrete pathways for the inner solar system to make it nice and pretty, but uh, I'd encourage everyone to make it out to, uh, to our campus and, and visit the model. And i understand that the inner solar
1: system will soon be near a park which is going to replace the uh (laughs) whatever is there currently it's just like the like (laughs) like a little bank and there's some trees and shrubs. so right right.
3: that'll be cool that berm is going to be lowered and uh, a park will net will then exist Mm -hmm. excellent a great place to
1: bring your kids then if you have any (laughs) cool well jimmy thanks so much for uh speaking with us and giving us that quick update on the uh renovated colorado scale model solar system that you kind of spearheaded and thanks for doing that
3: right no problem
1: and we're back so that was jimmy negus telling us about uh the renovated scale model colorado scale model solar system it's kind of a tongue twister say that five times fast um so come check it out john shakes his head and says no i don't think i will no, I won't, because I know I'll fail. <laughs> there you go. Um, hey, that's what a what a bad message to send. Don't do things because you'll know you'll fail.
0: <laughs> Sometimes you gotta set boundaries.
1: Yeah. Well said. Yeah, there you go. Nice. So
0: cool. <laughs> well, there's yeah, also that, lots of
2: oh, pardon me. Yeah, that uh project is part of the uh upcoming 50th anniversary of FISC. FISC was opened in 1975. So in 2025, we will officially be 50 years old. And the renovation of the scale model solar system is kind of one of the first changes that we're making at FISC. A lot haven't been publicly announced yet, so there's some things that we can't talk about. Um, But I think it's going to be, Quite the celebration. Yeah. So and- keep an
0: eye on the website and the social medias and things because we're going to have a lot of cool stuff leading up to the 50th anniversary, which I know like 2025 sounds like a long time from now, but it's only like three years yeah. from now. Holy cow. This is like, I feel like this is like a NASA mission. Like, we're launching in three years. That's so soon.
1: (laughs) Okay, they've been saying that about James Webb for 30 years, so. That's fair. Hey,
0: hey, fingers crossed, next week.
1: (laughs) week. It was was even already, it was the 18th and then the 22nd, and now it's the 24th, so um, I'll believe the launch when it's in the sky. But it's going to be really cool when it is. Wouldn't that be a great Christmas present? It would be. Yeah. Yeah, be especially because yeah. myself and a fellow presenter at Fisk, Rami Morgan and I are going to do a show about 2021 in review. And we would love to be able to talk about the launch of JWST. Um, so we'll see if we can, or if we can make the same joke we made last year, which is yeah. that it, it was, it's was it been planned to launch for like the past 10 years and it's yeah. still
2: being planned to launch. Yeah. And, and I want to say, uh astronomers and a lot of the public often joke about uh the web space telescope uh being delayed and delayed uh a lot of people are working very hard on it and they're delaying for reasons it's not just because they don't they don't feel like launching today uh this is this is an incredible Really complex project and it's going out to a place where we won't be able to go and fix it if something breaks so they want to be absolutely sure that once it gets out there it can do, do the job for as long as it possibly can it's a great point to make.
1: yeah we joke yeah. a lot about it but it's there's really good reasons why things you know are delayed i mean the astronomers want this thing in space as much as anyone you know it's their tool yeah. <laughs> So um, yeah, I mean, right now we're sitting at what roughly ten billion dollars worth of work on this thing. So it's a huge project, and yeah, um, very important that everyone's absolutely certain about everything that's going to happen before it goes up. So, thank you. Yeah, thanks for making that point, John. That's important. Yeah,
0: I will also point out that that ten billion dollars that everybody likes to scream about is a pittance compared to what the government spends on other programs. NASA gets less than 1% of the annual budget. So 10 billion
1: sounds like a lot of a percent. It's 0.4% of the U S federal budget, which is nothing.
2: So, uh, and that that money was spent on earth where it's not that we're taking a large pile of money and shooting it into space. (laughs) That money has been distributed out to facilities to employ people. And, you know, That's that's my answer when a lot of people ask, shouldn't that money be better spent here on Earth? It is being spent on Earth. We're not not taking money and shooting it into space. We're giving people jobs and uh, further advancing human knowledge at the same time.
1: Well, and something I think, you know, people, there's a a lot of, um, I think a lot of perspectives where like, why are we, you know, despite that fact, John, why are we paying people to study space? Like, what about everything else that's happening? I think it's easy to forget just how important space, uh, you know, the study of astronomy and space travel both have been to our modern day life. Things like our cell phones, computers that are small enough to be personal GPS systems, um, you know, global navigation, things that all of us, uh, you know, kind of rely on and, and perhaps take for granted as this is just a thing that we use comes out of space travel and, uh, spa- you know, space science. And so um, there's a lot of like, uh, uh, dare I say, trickle down from, uh, you know, space agency technology into, you know, civilian life. Yeah,
0: that's
1: one little thing there.
2: Moving on from that soapbox. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> upcoming, I think films. we've talked about that in a couple episodes. Too. I think we I'm have too. Sure if yeah. you
2: haven't noticed, it might be a little bit important to space scientists. <laughs> <laughs> we might be passionate about this. We might
1: be. But maybe not. Who knows? So, John, tell us about the upcoming productions at this.
2: Yes. So we've got three uh new films that are either have either have been premiered or are premiering in the next uh couple weeks to about a month away. Um the first one is drifting north into the polar night. That one is out now. I actually did a show about it uh on Thursday uh December 20 uh I recently did a show about it. <laughs> I was going to say yesterday but then I remembered that this is not coming out today um yeah we're recording this in the past that show has been premiered um it is an excellent show Uh, it features the mosaic project which was an icebreaker that went up into the arctic circle and got frozen into the ice for a year with uh dozens of scientists on board each measuring all sorts of things about the ice uh on the polar caps it's a fantastic show i highly recommend it um the second show that we're going to be premiering is kind of the sequel to that maybe not the sequel but um it goes along with that it's drifting north arctic pulse and that uh is also about the mosaic mission they cover different uh sides of the expedition uh into the polar night gives you more of a broad uh overview of uh, the mosaic mission while uh arctic talks more about the history that led up to it and um, some of the specific science that they're doing. Uh, Arctic Pulse has not premiered yet. That's premiering on January 29th. That's gonna be our first showing of it. And then finally, our big film that we've been working on for several years now uh, called Forward to the Moon. That's the movie that we had Carrie Byron narrate, and through that, she was able to come on this podcast and we were able to interview her. One of the highlights, I think for all three of us, of the work we've done on this podcast. That's premiering on February 2nd. We're actually going to have a special event. That's a Wednesday, I believe. So if you want to get tickets to that, I'm not sure when those are going to be available, and I'm not sure how many of those are we going to have. So keep an eye on the website uh, if that's something you want to come to. After that, uh, we'll, be show- we'll put that into a regular cycle of shows, and it'll be available uh, probably fairly often because that's a big project. We're working on it. We're very proud of it, um, and I think it's going to be a really good movie.
1: If you've ever seen Capcom Go at Fisk, if the, if you liked that kind of show, Forward to the Moon is the next show to see. I think and I we saw the trailer, and it it it's so inspiring. A lot of the stuff that we show is you know it's it's scientific, it's factual. Like we're delivering information, and it's very entertaining and informative. But there's something about this idea of like exploration, right? That is so, I think, um, human and so forward to the moon is going to be a really cool, you know, hype up, hype people up to like the next kind of phase of space travel. Um, it's going to be sick. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Cool. So, yeah, those are the shows that we have, or the uh, films that we have coming up. Um, and then we're in production for a couple more. Uh, we're still working on uh, getting those funded and uh starting production so can't talk too much about those but we've got more coming up um so yeah and is it true
1: john that films that fisk produces will ultimately be available in planetariums
2: around the world Absolutely. Every film that we produce, all of the content that we produce, um, not necessarily the stuff that we do for live shows, but anything that we pre record um, is available. We release it available for anyone. On our website, Colorado.edu/slash Fisk, we have a production section and that lists every uh, film that we've made, I think, in the past several years i don't want to be as specific about a number of years because i'm not sure sure um but you can go on there uh you sometimes it'll have like the full film that you can just watch right there um if it doesn't then there's a request form that you can send out and if you're at an educational institution a planetarium um any any scientific uh facility you can request these these films and we'll just send you a copy of them yeah we've got a we've got a lot of really good content well thanks john for
1: uh our briefing on our productions goings on yeah very cool that we kind of you know to produce your own movies like that's just that's yeah
2: yeah it's not something i ever kind of imagined i would be doing um you know, as a kid, I always thought, you know, it'd be cool to make movies, but now I'm doing it and it's a lot of fun.
1: Well, congratulations. That's super yeah. cool. And also thanks. Cause you know, I think those productions are a big part of what makes Fisk Fisk. So
2: absolutely. Yeah, definitely.
0: And now we will come to the future of the podcast. As we mentioned back at the beginning, this is the last episode of A View from Earth. We have run our course and uh, run out of funding, essentially. But this is not conti- not discontinuing podcasts altogether. A View from Earth is sort of morphing into a new and different podcast called Heart. Unfortunately, I will not be involved in SciHeart. I will not be the co-host for that. Colin will still be here. But he will also be joined by our friend Nina, who we got to come and tell you a little bit about the Sci-Heart Podcast.
1: So to kind of introduce how a view from Earth will transform into the next iteration of a Fisk Planetarian Podcast, uh, it is my pleasure to introduce um, Nina, uh, who is our, uh, who will be my co-host uh, in this next iteration of uh, the podcast. And so Nina, hello, welcome hello. to the show. And if you 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 know like, could you introduce yourself briefly and and kind of what we're looking at in the future?
7: Yeah, for sure. So hello out there, everyone. My name is Nina. Uh, I've been working with the education outreach team at the Fisk Planetarium for a little over a year now, and soon I'll be working with Colin to bring you a podcast called SciHeart, which stands for Scientists. As hobbyists and artists. Yeah, so hopefully in the January to February timeline, we're going to start this podcast that's supposed to illuminate the broader humanity of scientists and science adjacent professionals working on like leading edge STEM related contexts. And this whole new podcast is sponsored by uh, something called the Punch mission, which is a NASA Small Explorer mission, call it a SMEX, uh, to better understand how the mass and energy of the sun's corona becomes the solar wind that fills up our entire solar system. So there are over 4,000 different scientists involved in this mission, and we are hoping to illuminate some of their stories in this podcast different leaders in science and engineering and science communication we're hopefully going to have on the show and then eventually we're trying to spotlight other nasa missions as we progress so i'm really looking forward to trying that out with y'all and talking to our captive audience that we've got here
1: absolutely it's yeah. going to be a lot of fun. So SciHeart, uh, and we actually <laughs>
7: we we kind
1: of attempted some previews of SciHeart style episodes, but that was really before uh, I think Tara and I truly understood what SciHeart was all about. Um, so these were episodes. I'm looking at our SoundCloud right now. Episodes 28 and 29. So that's uh, one two punch of science and outreach in students studying the sun with STEM. Um, and they were our yeah. interviews with Dr. Uh, that was Craig DeForest and Mary Hansen, if I remember correctly. Um, right. and those interviews were a lot of fun, uh, but they, they were very much a view from earth style interviews. Um, and so we're going to, uh, perhaps we'll, you know, hear from them again in the future, uh, and talk a lot more about, you know, their hobbies and art rather than just, you know, the, the scientific kind of objectives that they have.
7: Exactly. Yeah. We're hoping to get a deeper dive if you will. Yeah. Which so will be we're cool. excited. Tune in in the new year.
1: Perhaps it'll, you know, it'll be a nice compliment to. We've spent four seasons here talking a lot about the science and, you know, it's kind of a meme when we are putting together our questions for our interviews <laughs> that the, the our last couple of questions are always very similar, which is, you know, tell us about yourself as a person. How did right. you get to where you are? What do you enjoy doing outside of the office, et cetera? And so Cyheart uh, will kind of turn that on its head. And we're going to focus a lot more on those last couple of questions as the bulk of the, Of the episodes. It'll be a lot of fun.
7: Yeah, great. Thanks. Can't wait, y'all.
1: Well, Nina, thanks for joining us on this 2021 holiday special. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll hear from you a lot uh, in the coming months.
7: That you will. Colin, Tara, thanks so much for having me. Talk to you all later.
1: So this was our uh, conversation with Nina about the future of this podcast, SciHeart. And uh, we don't have any super rock solid release dates yet. Um, In the coming months, we plan to release roughly an episode a month starting in either January or February is our plan now. Um, But you know, keep your eyes peeled. And uh, as long as you stay subscribed, actually, John, this is a question for you. How does this work? Will it be a different show? Will we produce from the same account? What's that look like?
2: Uh, We'll be producing from the same account. Um, We'll be keeping the A View from Earth episodes. We're just going to change the titles a little bit so that we distinguish uh, which show each episode is for. But, yeah, if you stay subscribed to the same place you're listening to this on, you'll automatically get those new episodes. So just stay subscribed. If you're not, hit that subscribe button and make sure that you have uh notifications on so you get updates on when those new episodes are released
0: so if you're already subscribed you don't have to do a thing
2: nope i We're love it the best, easy as we can
0: you have to do work to unsubscribe <laughs> so just stay subscribed it's not yeah. worth the trouble to don't like go to through you and.
1: <laughs> just don't do it. it where you are don't do it <laughs> cool all right everyone well thanks so much for joining us on this 2021 holiday special of a view from earth our final episode it's been such a pleasure uh, to go on this journey with you all john tara thanks for being such a great team to work with um and jeremy who was our producer for season four mostly while john was out um thank you jeremy also for doing the show with us and uh i guess we'll see you on the next episode the premiere of sciheart
5: Bye.